Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to the first Science of Sport episode of 2023 and uh, we've had a bit of a break over the festive season and I hope you've all had a chance to uh, have a break or do some more exercise or do some more of your favourite sport, whatever it is that uh, helps you relax over the festive season. I think most of us probably ate a little bit too much and didn't train as much as we normally do, but uh, it was nice to get a bit of a tan on the legs and ride during the the daylight hours as opposed to riding at 5.30 in the morning like we used to. Eat your hearts out, Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Exactly. So those. I know, know, Ross, you were in the UK, Mm. which is a very different scenario from us here in South Africa because the temperatures in Cape Town over the last sort of three weeks have been quite hot and uh, and warm whereas in the UK when you arrived there it was snowing wasn't it most of the time yeah we are starting rides at minus six <laughs> and then warming up to three or four below that's Celsius by the way but cold and icy and snowy and windy and not pleasant at all now my son lives in the UK and he says the problem with training and riding particularly on a bike there is the black ice isn't it because you've got to be super careful suddenly you're riding along next minute you're on the ground didn't happen to me luckily yeah. but, but is, is, it, is it a real problem I, w- I would imagine so yeah. I would imagine so I mean I was on white ice <laughs> yes. like clenching my teeth and trying to not slide off but I would, I would imagine the black ice I remember once running in the US up in New Hampshire and I actually fell then running on yes. black ice I just suddenly my it was like a cartoon character skidding, slipping on a banana peel. You know, my yeah. feet were above the level of my head. Yeah. Um, so I'd imagine on a bike, if you hit it wrong, on brakes, cornering, you'll go down. You'll go down. I remember actually running in, in, in Central Park, actually, uh, a few years back. And also the same thing happening, running along. Suddenly, I was running literally on the spot like a cartoon character <laughs> with my legs moving, but no forward motion. <laughs> I didn't fall, but it was she comical to watch. She hadn't like, gone off the path and found yourself on the ice rink. Yes, exactly. That's mm. what it felt like. Yeah. yeah, so for those of you who live in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a very different proposition sport, I think, to most of us who live in the Southern Hemisphere. But uh, I always a bit jealous of those that live in the Northern Hemisphere when summer arrives because those long summer days and the places like the UK and Europe are absolutely incredible. So you've got lots to look forward to and uh, we've got a few more days of uh, summer left for us down here in the south. And this year, uh, of course, there is a lot to be talking about and uh, I was just looking very briefly through some of the events happening this year in the world of sports, sort of world event championships, the world handball championships this year, the world university games, the first big event I think of the year is probably the Australian Open. The Men's Hockey World Cup is taking place this year. The Six Nations uh, Rugby is also taking place as it does every single year. The Super Bowl is in Glendale, Arizona, and that's going to be happening in February. Um, and then, of course, the World Snooker Championships, the Grand Nationals taking place, the World Athletics Championships, the World Championships in Table Tennis is also happening this year. And uh, the Special Olympics, the World Summer Games also happening. Of course, all the regular events like the Tour de France and the uh, and Wimbledon and also happening as usual. And the World Urban Games, just having a very quick look through uh, the World Fire 
police and fire games. Just imagine what's on the schedule there. Um, and then the Netball Cup, of course, happening in South Africa mm. here in Cape Town, which should be interesting to watch. Maybe yep. we should do something on netball. It's a very popular sport here in South Africa. Yep. And uh, the World Cycling Championships happening in August in Glasgow in Scotland, um, which is interesting. So it's a very unusual place, I would think, to be having the World Cycling Championships. Uh, A lot to look forward to. Um, We're going to get on to sort of the highlights of this year um, a bit later on in the show as we kind of sort of uh, give our sort of highlights of the year. But Ross, any sort of news resolutions you've got on your side? Uh, yeah, a couple, professionally and personally. I mean, mm-hmm. the obvious one is to say I'm going to lose weight, but I say that every year. <laughs> like last year, I remember saying I'm going to lose five kilograms, and then the week before Christmas, I only had seven to go. So that's how that. <laughs> so that's how that New Year's resolution tends to go for me. So I'm not going to do that this year. What I have realised, especially travelling, because you're sitting in airplane seats, and I don't get first or business class. I'm in the back. Uh-huh. Um, I turn right, as my colleague says, when I get on the plane. <laughs> and I've realized that my back and core is so weak that when I get off the plane on the other side of a 10, 11 hour flight, I, f- I feel like a 90 year old. Mm. And so I've made a commitment that I'm going to work harder on off the bike, core and upper body work this year. So that's the one thing. Yeah. And then just to try and stay a bit healthier and not have COVID scares and cancer scares and whatever else happens. Yeah. So, but the, but the core thing and the training thing is is the main goal. Yeah, you. Well, I've got, I've got a, quite a simple one. I'm I'm always looking to lose a bit of weight, but I, I think you know we've done a couple of stories in both runners' world and bicycling, where the sort of headline of that story and it's stuff that we get from the US um, talks a little bit about don't focus so much on the weight, and I think that's quite an important thing. Is that we always get focused. Uh, a lot of people, particularly early on in the year, want to lose weight, and the problem with that is is that you start going to diets that are depletion diets. There's fasting and mm. banting and that sort of thing, which in my mind, and it's controversial, is not sustainable for me. It is sustainable for some people, but it's not sustainable for me. And I know that what I need to do, having seen a lot of, uh, having seen a dietitian a lot last year, is that diet is relatively simple, but relatively hard in the same in the same area. And one thing I learned from going into a dietitian for you know, almost a year, and I see her once a month now, just as a sort of a catch up, it's how important it is to eat regularly. You know, people will say fasting diets and people will say banting diets. And there's no doubt that the evidence of that is just, if you're doing those diets, you're just eating less. So of course you're gonna lose weight. There's not necessarily a healthy way of eating. So what she taught me is literally about making sure when I wake up in the morning, I'm eating within half an hour waking up. I'm having breakfast, I'm having a healthy breakfast with some protein and it's either eggs or a smoothie or protein powder, having a mid-morning snack, having a lunch that's reasonably healthy and then eating relatively low carbs (coughs) at night. And I'm really quite keen to kind of get into the routine of having a more healthy schedule of eating rather than trying to eat to lose weight um, mm. because I think that's that's, that's going to be sustainable for me this year. It's worth trying to find someone who's a world expert on diet mm. because I've seen some numbers and I, I'm guessing at the numbers now because I don't remember them, but it's crazy. Like 90% of diets fail and 90% of people who succeed on a diet will relapse after they stop the diet anyway. Yeah. So when you take both those things into account, the likelihood of getting from your top, your current situation to your destination via dieting is probably incredibly low yeah um, for sure but that said what you're describing now the routines and so forth probably a lot of people fail with as well you know like mm. what do you reckon will be the biggest barriers to you successfully doing that this year planning so without doubt 
planning is the critical part of that. And that's one thing that I'm not particularly good at doing. So for instance, for me now, one of the things I have to do, and it's a simple tip and it's a great tip, is that I'm always, my wife is an extremely good cook and we eat well. So I always have the habit of going back for that second helping. What I've learned to do now, having seen Kim Hoffman, who was actually a guest on the show nice. a couple of years back, she said to me, before you have dished up that plate, dish your leftovers up for your lunch tomorrow. So that you know, you're not going to go back for seconds, because if you have seconds, you're not going to have lunch tomorrow. So immediately, you've already partitioned some of that food mm. into your leftovers for the next day. So that by the time I'm having breakfast or having lunch the next day, I'm having reasonable leftovers. And normally our dinners are probably the healthiest meal of the day for us. So it does help me to do that. And if I plan that, bring it to work, have a minimal, have some snacks, have some stuff in my drawer that is always available, nuts and seeds and trail mix. I'll be able to sustain that regular eating pattern throughout the day and I won't crave sweets. And because one problem that happens, and I think that happens with most people, if you don't eat properly, what ends up happening is that you start eating junk. Mm. So if I don't eat and I miss breakfast, by the time it comes to lunch, I'm so hungry that I'm hitting the, the bad stuff. I'm hitting the fast foods, I'm hitting the chips, mm. I'm eating the stuff I shouldn't have. Whereas if I eat healthy, have a breakfast within half an hour waking up, my diet throughout the day is much, much better. So, Do you think sometimes that, you know, like there's a trade-off between planning and being so inflexible that you can't adapt to what life throws at you? Because yeah. I would imagine a lot of times, like the best laid plans don't, as they say, don't survive first contact, in this case with life. And so, for instance, this is, this is definitely a South African problem, is we have this thing called load shedding, <laughs> where the power goes out for two or three hours at a time in each region of the country because that the government hasn't managed to forecast and meet the demand. And so we don't have enough power to keep the country's lights and power on. So what happens is, and like this has happened to me often, is I'll have every intention of cooking a meal at home and, and then suddenly the lights go out at six o'clock in the evening. So I say, all right, no worries, I'll go get a pizza yeah. or go out for a burger because what else am I going to do? I can't do it at home. Yeah. Anyway, now that's, that's one yeah. thing life throws at you, but like with kids and family and so on work. Yeah. So at what point do you become overplanned? Well, again, uh, having learned through Kim, um, is also understand that you're you're not going to be 100% right all of the time. In other words, you're, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have bad days. Mm. And I think that those bad days, you can't sit and dwell on them. You've got to ex- you're going to expect yourself to have a bad day where you're going to go and have a pizza. Mm. Or because of the fact that the load shedding is happening and we, we you can't cook supper, suddenly you have to now go and buy something that's an unusual but don't make that a regular habit in other words you want to be 80 percent of the time sticking to your diet but being inflexible i agree is not also not possible Mm. and i think it's giving yourself permission to have days when you don't you know having cheat days when we go and have beers with friends on a friday afternoon after a ride it's a great social time i Mm. think there's a lot of health benefits to that as well Mm. it might be great drinking two beers or three beers but it's not bad and we'll get into alcohol and exercise shortly shortly. i mean it's not that dissimilar to training right you have a training Mm. plan yeah but you not you don't and and i think a lot of athletes would make this mistake of being so rigidly um disciplined about that plan that they end up not listening to their bodies and forcing and pleasant training on themselves when they're not actually ready for it. So yeah. maybe the, the discipline of planning to like learn good habits and then after you've acquired good habits, you can be more agile in your... Correct. So it would be, so it's again, diet person. I'd love to hear from elite athletes about yeah. their approach to diet and then your six months, seven months from now check-in, we must see how it's going. Yeah, mm. yeah. I know the theory, I'm just going to get the practice sorted out. 
Anyway, so let's move on to uh, some of uh, we talked about. I mean, Ross, you've got a couple of professional things happening in Orlaf as well. Let's uh, maybe you can expand a little bit on. Uh, obviously, you've been involved in world rugby for for many years now, and mm. uh, that continues. But uh, some exciting news and developments on your side with other other new. Yeah, uh, and employment opportunities. And and so I started literally yesterday was my first day doing a bit of work for Ilana Mayer, who listeners may know in 1992 was a South African 10,000 meter runner, won silver in those games in Barcelona. You would have been there, I guess, I was watching and covering that. At 22 years of age. <laughs> and uh, so she's a South African running legend. And 10 years ago, you, you were probably at this also. We were, we were both at it. She launched a project called EnduroCAD, which is basically an attempt to try and make smart investments into coaching and training of distance running in South Africa. And that's now evolved to the point that they've got a couple of different arms. They've got mentorship programs for young athletes. They've got an elite EnduroCAD arm and club. And they've now got a, a project where they receive enough funding that they can go out into rural areas and identify talented youngsters at school and then offer them scholarships to come and study, well, to be at school in Stellenbosch. And then they provide support to those athletes, training, tutorials, education, life skills, and so forth. And she's quite committed and keen on getting sports science into that program via the coaches. So she's created a role of technical lead for the EnduroCAD program, and I've taken that up now. And so one day a week will probably end up being more, as always, but I'll be working on that. And it involves, it involves coach education. Because like, let's say it's injury prevention, or nutrition, or psychology, or training planning and management everything you do has to be directed via the coach that's the person who's the literal interface with the athlete right so a lot of it's going to be focused on upskilling and developing the coaches there's a significant part of its talent id they offer 15 to 20 bursaries a year the more effectively you do that the more chance you'll have of producing national olympic athletes at the end so there'll be a big talent ID component. So I suspect that listeners will be subjected to some of my um, <laughs> thinking and musings and discoveries around that because it'll be nice for me to be in a space. I've been working for the last six years now on injury prevention, concussion type stuff, and I drifted away a little bit from the performance science. Mm. And now I can go back to that. That was the big appeal, like why I wanted to do it, to get yeah, back exciting. into that space. So yeah, it should be fun. Looking forward to it. Just a quick question. I mean, it's, we obviously will get and probably discuss this many times throughout the year, but when you look at athletes, always compare it to cyclists. If, you, if you're if you a potentially a good cyclist, you can look at what's per kilo and you can mm-hmm. say that person at the age of 16 years of age is doing enough to be a potential world-class cyclist. Can you do the same in, in athletics? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. To some degree, and I mean, speed is the easiest because you either have it or you don't. You're fast mm. or you're not. So you it's over 60 meters or 40 if it's a young kid, you can say, okay, there's speed there. And you can develop speed to some degree. You can improve your technical abilities. Your biomechanics can improve and you'll get faster. But if you're looking for a person with the ability to run 
sub 10.1 for for men that makes you national level sub 10 for elite or 11.2 for maybe for women 11.4 you you're constrained by genetics and you can assess those with some basic tests for the other disciplines it's more difficult because you know like a middle distance runner has to have a minimum speed there's you have to you know like you're not going to be a successful 1500 runner if you can't run a 47 second 48 400 yeah but that's not that fast i mean it's still fast it's fast yeah 99 of the world but you're not a 400 meter specialist but then on top of that you have to have the endurance ability and the durability to turn your speed or to access your speed when fatigued you know and durability yeah. is interesting actually by the way and those things are much more difficult to measure so the 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 miss rate or the let's call it the hit rate will be quite low in those disciplines yeah now there are things you can look at i mean body type body shape you know people who are muscular and stocky aren't distance runners you don't yeah. see them you know you just look at the start line of a marathon and you can tell it's not that dissimilar from cycling if you're going to win the tour de france you don't look like a philippe ganna no. possible yeah <laughs> um so there's some things that we can do and and like i'm that's what i'm most interested in exploring and seeing if there's ways to innovate around that yeah no yeah. I mean, i'm very interested because yeah. what are the the things in South Africa, obviously, development is a very strong theme here because of the history of this country. And we've seen a lot of disadvantaged athletes not having access to to facilities and coaching diet. and diet that, mm-hmm. that make some great athletes. But then, you know, lots of places in Africa that don't necessarily have that either, producing great champions. Right. And my belief is that the best development is to creating heroes within the sport. Yeah. And Alana May is a prime example is that she's got such a great name. And because she's such a legend here, people even know that she is 20 years post her best. She's still somebody that a lot of young athletes look up to as somebody that they would like to be. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so. that's part of what we, so we had a big planning meeting yesterday. We've got our first quarter planned and it's really interesting. So we want to try and get athletes from other sports in as well you know and because you have to create an environment of aspiration Mm. it sounds it doesn't sound very scientific but people won't understand potential until they see it you see you can't totally you can't ask people to imagine their 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 hope um they have to be able to experience it and understand that this is possible so we have to give them that in addition so it's quite nice because it's a strategic role Mm. with a strong science focus yeah and so yeah there'll be a there will be a focus this year more, I think, on performance than maybe yeah. injuries. In the in the past, it's been injuries more than performance. Maybe this year we can address that yeah. balance because I want to. <laughs> I'd like to have, actually, we'd nice to have Alana here on the podcast maybe sometime this year and actually chat to her because she's got such a lot of experience, not only as a top athlete, but somebody that's been involved in mm-hmm. developing young athletes. So. Right. Right, moving on to our very loved patrons on Patreon. I know one of our patrons finds it amusing that we sort of uh, vacillate between patrons and patrons. I think you'll uh, find she didn't say amusing, but adorable. Adorable. She said that you were adorable for how you mixed up patrons and patrons. And it's her caught my eye that we're about to get onto. Yes. So just to clarify, our patrons are our supporters on Patreon. If you want to check out our Patreon account, you can just go into patreon.com and look at forward slash patreon.com and then science of sport and you'll find our page there you can donate a small amount of money and be part of our patron patreon community <laughs> as one of our patrons but let's get on to uh, one of our patrons and one of their submissions um, yeah. over this very so, active festive season isn't it? Patrons it, have been busy. it was pretty it was pretty lively a lot of messages and those who have submitted me emails i've, I've gone through about half of them but i'm, I'm going to get through the rest of them this week but pratima has been one of the most prolific patrons that we've had every podcast almost she emails some feedback thoughts on the podcast really love hearing from you so thanks very much 
And on the, just around the turn of the new year, she sent us a link to an article that appeared in bicycling.com. And I know that you, as the editor of Bicycling South Africa, are going to be running this piece. So you know Correct. it as well. So it caught your eye. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically an article that is titled, Does Cycling Have a Drinking Problem? Written by Gloria Liu. And it talks, it's a fairly lengthy piece, probably a 10, 15 minute read for many. But it's interesting, and it talks about the health risks of any amount of alcohol. And she talks here about, for instance, I'm reading now, the American Cancer Society lists alcohol as the third leading lifestyle risk factor for cancer <laughs> after cigarette smoking and excess body weight. And there's a whole section in this about what alcohol intake, even in moderation, does to the risk of cardiovascular disease and cancers. Mm. With some alarming stats, you know, she talks here about an 80% increase in risk of uh, mouth or throat cancer as a moderate drinker, a 16% risk of developing atrial fibrillation with just one drink a day. So those of you who are doing What a is dry, atrial fibrillation, just so you can understand that? Well, remember the normal process of cardiac contraction involves the atrium contracting and then the ventricle to eject the blood out the heart. And when it's fibrillates, it basically flutters. And that's, that's a very serious problem. The ventricular fibrillation is lethal. We'll get onto that actually in a moment because that's another quarter eye. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's not it's not desirable, of course. Atrial less severe than ventricular, but it's basically the heart flutters and fails to contract with the force necessary to do its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So so those of you doing a dry January, you'll read this article and say, actually, you know what? Maybe I'm going to keep going at the end of January and try and stay off alcohol. And it's a cautionary tale, you know. So it's, I'm going to put the link in the show notes and you can have a look at it. I. I mean, I'll the first to say, we you've, you've alluded to it, we finish a ride on a Friday and we often f- go for a beer or two. And I love doing that. And I'm not, I'm not going to stop on account of this article because <laughs> for me, the, the, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the health benefits described in this piece are wrong, but for me, there's, a, there's other benefits also. I read a, interesting, I read a tweet this morning from Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's mm. that physicist. Yes. And I'm, I saved the tweet, I don't have it in front of me, in which he talks about bodies are basically just sacks of chemicals and so forth. If you, if you believe that, then you'd stop drinking. Mm. But if you understand that we're more than just that, and we also have mm. certain other emotional and psychological factors, and then maybe, maybe that social drink is actually helping you. For sure. At the expense. There's trade-offs, yes, but there's, there's, it's at the expense of some health benefits here this cancer risk and atrial fibrillation risk i mean i'm I'm exactly the same as you i looked at that and while we're putting it in the magazine um here in south africa i looked at the story and i I tended to focus on those slightly alarmist um figures when you look at the Mm. cancer risks and that sort of thing and you think god it's absolutely incredible that you know just moderate moderate drinking is having such a bad effect on me but I think what it does, once you contextualize what that actually means, right. it, it shows you, yes, alcohol is not great for you, but it also, you know, it's getting the context of that right is that, you know, too much alcohol it can be devastatingly bad for you. And I, yes. think, and I think to some extent, and I'm not sure that it totally exists, I think it happens a lot in running as well, and maybe it's a uniquely South African problem, but I always find that Finishing a ride, finishing a, a run, often in the morning on a Sunday, the first thing that an athlete will have is a beer. And I think that's a, I don't think that's a particularly clever thing to do because no, no, it, de- it dehydrates you. It's not 
great to replenish with a beer. Rather have a, a sports drink or something like that before you've had a beer. And I think in South Africa, we see a lot of guys, they finish a hard ride and the first thing they do is they hit that beer. I'm not sure the liver would love, liver likes that very much. I suspect, you know, based on this article, they talk in this article about events that are held and they have uh, prizes and incentives and beer tickets and so forth. And mm. there's the, the, the bike industry, I mean, I cycled a little bit in Colorado. It's very much built around draft beers, craft beers and breweries and so on. Mm. So I think there is a culture of like, I've earned the right to have this drink. So therefore I'm going to have three of them <laughs> yes. or four of them or five of them. And, and so it's, we, we've, we've traded off our healthy behavior as a, as a way to pay for our unhealthy behavior. Mm. Now that's not good, obviously, mm. but we're not sitting here saying that you should stop altogether even if there's no healthy dose of alcohol, because mm. that's physiologically, and we are not just sacks of chemicals. So, yeah. but, and, and the, it is very important to contextualize this. And again, I'm not trying to downplay it, but when I hear something like 80% increase in risk, what I'm saying is that sounds terrible. Yeah. Because people see, people immediately assume 100 means a guarantee, <laughs> but it doesn't work like that way with risk, right? Because what that's saying is that you've got to take your base risk and increase it by 80%. Now, let's say, for argument's sake, that the base risk of a disease is one in a thousand. One in a hundred. Let's yeah. do that. An 80% increase takes it to 1.8 in a hundred, mm. which means it goes from 99 in a hundred not having it to 98.2 in a hundred not having it contextualized that way it's actually not that big an increase whereas if it's a disease like diabetes where it's 200 in a thousand or 20 in a hundred then that 80 percent increase is actually quite significant because you're adding 80 percent to an already large number does yeah. that make sense yeah makes sense so when you want to understand risk the, the percentage is not the only thing i mean we come across this all the time with concussion and dementia fourfold higher risk oh that's alarming but actually mm. if the base risk is low enough it's it's, it's still bad but it's not catastrophically yeah so stuff like that you so i'm going to put the article link there because it is interesting and it's an important article and if it's the thing that makes you stop at three instead of four or one glass of wine instead of two or whatever then great it's done its job because mm. you'll be healthier yeah but i don't want to scare people into mm. changing their behavior it's the same as diet actually like we all know how to eat healthily but if you took that to the nth degree and you ate the perfectly healthy diet, I suspect you'd probably be quite socially unhappy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're trading, life is all trade-offs. And yeah. this article might shift you closer to a healthier balance, but don't take it to the other extreme is what I'm saying, if you don't want to. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a great summary, actually. It's, 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 it's just shifting the mindset rather than suddenly yeah. making catastrophic decisions which might make you a little bit unhealthy. Correct. I mean, do we know, for instance, that... We always talk about the fact that if you know, red wine is the healthiest thing to drink. I mean, I always think when you talk about healthy drinks, you know, people talk about red wine. They talk about whiskey. They talk about um, they talk about uh, you know all sorts of you know spirits that you can drink that are better for you than beer and that sort of thing. I mean, do you know offhand if you're going to have a drink, what the healthiest drink is? Water. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know actually. I'm not up to speed with the. Uh... I'm not up to speed with the, the, the latest research yeah. on that. I will say this, though. We, should do, a paper, we should do a pot on it, though. There's a, there's a paper that was published, and I read about it, referred to in a piece that David Epstein wrote, everything in your fridge causes cancer. Yeah. And basically, it's a collection of all the studies that have been done, and it takes milk and wine and beers and bacon and everything else that you might find in your fridge. And it plots how the studies have quantified the change in cancer risk. Mm. 
And literally, with the exception of bacon, every single thing has been shown in some studies to cause it and some studies to prevent it. <laughs> so, so there are studies showing that milk ingestion reduces the cancer risk. There are some studies showing it goes up. Uh -huh. Bacon's the only one where it's ever been shown to increase the risk. <laughs> and again, that's another example of like, if you love the bacon, then just have some in moderation. Yeah. But the point is, everything can be shown in the, these studies are very difficult to do yeah. well and yeah. so that's it's margarine or butter debate isn't it yeah so that's why i'm yeah. ducking to some extent your question because i yeah. don't know no nah. but I, i'm also quite confident that you could probably find evidence across the board i remember reading the red wine studies you know cardiovascular health because of what the chemicals they contain mm. but then the alcohol part of it's bad for you if you could separate the ingredients you'd only want half of them yeah 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 yeah. So thanks very much to our patron, uh, Pratima, who is a nurse, and uh, we will try and make sure that we are consistently talking about patrons on Patreon for you, Pratima, so that we know exactly what we're talking about. So thank you very much for your very active part of the Patreon community. And I know Ross um, is doing quite regular newsletters to the, uh, to the um, uh, Patreon community. So if you want to be part of some of the latest stuff that's happening and some of Ross's musings on various things within the sports science uh, field, um, if you're on Patreon, you'll get those regular updates. So yeah. it's a good little benefit. Yeah, I've kind um, of like, that's another New Year's resolution. I started it towards the end of last year. You will get a weekly email yeah as, as, as i hope if i'm if i can get 85 percent of them done this year i'll consider it success but it's an email <laughs> of something that caught my eye an article i'd read and so on this week was about the demar hamlin case which we'll get on to but mm. that's that's one of the benefits of signing up so thank you again for all your support and you can look forward to that dialogue yeah Great. So talking about caught my eyes, I know that uh, Ross, you've got a one coming up, but uh, I'm going to kick off with the one that I caught my eye. Over this uh, last couple of weeks, I've been watching the Zwift Academy um, for 2022. And I think in 2021, I think it might have been the first one, of course, to produce a great athlete called Jay Vine. Now, just to, for those of you that uh, want to know what the Zwift Academy was, is essentially what they did is they had a competition on Zwift, which is obviously the, the um, virtual cycling platform. And they came up with 10 riders in the end they eventually went to a training camp and then they decide who the best rider is and they have a men's a men's winner and a women's winner and they get a pro contract um in those uh, alperson de Koenig teams and the canyon SRAM team for women and uh, what was very interesting uh, in in that and i'm quite fascinated because they have mateo van der poel who's there racing against these three male athletes uh, in the final sort of couple of episodes um, and how he takes them on and they're trying to beat him so there's three very talented relatively young riders taking on you know mateo van der poel in this I think it was about a three or f I think it was about three point seven kilometer race. In other words, they say to them, "There's four of you going to the line. Three of you are up against Mateo van der Poel, and you're going to try and beat him." Now, any scenario where you took that to a world tour race, you would say that that three those three riders should beat a rider like Mateo van der Poel. And what was very clever is Mateo van der Poel just kept the pace so high that they couldn't get past him, and eventually he won it just narrowly on a sprint. But what was interesting and uh, controversial and it was uh, very much if you watch the YouTube um, broadcast of it in the women's race um, the by far the best rider was a 37 year old and uh, the final challenge where they had to climb up this very tough climb in Spain um, she'd absolutely annihilated the other two riders in the team and she was consistently the best rider I think over the course of the entire competition but she did win and uh, what was controversial and what was commented off often is that because she was, there was the idea that she was too old to take up a pro contract at 37, 
And people were saying, well, she shouldn't have been allowed to participate in the competition mm. if she was too old to win it. Um, and they have responded. The organizers have you know, said that the best rider that they thought for their, the team of Kenny and Tram got the pro contract. But the, without a doubt, if you looked at all the comments below the YouTube um, uh, uh, episode, it was all in favor of this 37-year-old who had really just dominated. So it was, it was controversial. Um, and I guess it, it made for good TV. <laughs> so, yeah, a couple of things on that. First of all, it's a great model for talent development. It's and, fantastic. You know, you asked me earlier on about in running, now that I'm working on this Enduricad technical project, how you'd identify talent there. This is an example of doing those, applying those principles in cycling. And it's really good because you, you know what the demand is of racing at the elite level. So you can effectively reverse engineer it. Mm. And then it's such a numbers-based exercise, physiologically and power-wise. So... You know, you can exclude anyone who doesn't have a VO2 max above X. Yeah. That's an entry requirement. You know, it's like we've used the analogy before, like that's your ticket onto the dance floor. Mm. So there's a batch of testing that immediately can cut your population from 100 down to 25. Then within those 25, you ask what performance capabilities come with VO2 max because your engine size, your VO2 max is not the only thing that determines your performance. And so mm. there was a paper, actually, this is another thing that caught my eye. There's so many, actually, we should, I'll, next next time we'll do this one. <laughs> it was published by Valenzuela in 2022. And it was a description of elite power output profiles. So, you know, like on Strava or Garmin, whatever you use, you can go get your power curve and say, okay, for one minute this was my power for five minutes my highest power in the last three months was this for 10 minutes for 20. so for example the one minute power to put you in the top 10 percent of elite male cyclists is 820 <laughs> in, in the study right so 820 watts puts you in the top 10 the 90th percentile so you'd be in the top 10 percent if mm. a pool is in that group no doubt five minute 531 20 minutes 453 yes 50 uh, 60 minutes 398 and then four hours, 3.25, which is quite staggering. Actually. Yeah. Like, that one strikes me as the most remarkable, to think of doing that for four hours. Yeah. Eight, 8.20, I'm like, yeah, I could probably do that for half that time. Yes. No, 20 seconds of it, a third of that time. I'm not going to get close <laughs> to that for four hours. So yeah. anyway, so then you can do, and this is what they're doing with Swift, is they're testing their abilities to hit these power outputs for those periods in varying situations and then the last thing you do is effectively benchmarking against front of pool it's a great model it's it's great it's cool it's and it's great to watch cool. and what was interesting is that there's obviously a lot of tactical nuance mm. that these riders and they're not these guys that have done very well on, on swift obviously are not just zuf riders they are very good cyclists even sure. in, in reality um but it was interesting that you know tactically they 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 weren't at world tour level and even the People who are the judges um, are talking about the fact mm. that you know they're not at world tier level in terms of their tactics. So yeah, and I guess they have to learn that. So tactics and psychology and being able to turn lab numbers like these into race numbers. You know that's why this Valenzuela study is interesting because these are in races. Now yeah. they'll have a they'll have a fiftieth percentile, a seventy fifth percentile, a ninetieth, and a ninety fifth, and then you get your ninety eighth, which is where Pogacar, Evan, Apul, Vinegar, and Wout van Aert, and so on. Are in. Yeah. But but it's it's a cool way to understand like how the performance is created by things that can then be measured and so on now as for the 37 year old it's interesting i wonder whether she'll get a deal from another team that thinks mm. that they do just want a physiological specimen on their team for two years mm. you know because okay she's 37 well valverde was quite a lot older than that he won the valverde would have won a world title at later than 37 right, right. When he, yeah. in innsbruck he was older he was than that 38 39 at yeah, least I something like that so you're not 
the numbers will show. And if she's that good on the road, she, she'd fit into the pro peloton without mm. being blown off the back. And so that particular climb that she went up, so, she was a minute faster than the than the king of the king queen of the mountains up there, which was held by one of the top professional riders. So, so it's interesting that they, they didn't, because yeah. <laughs> yeah. you can understand they want to say we're making a five year investment. Mm. I mean, they made that with Vine, mm. and then he's left them to go to UAE. Mm. <laughs> so, yes. so actually, but he's the poster boy of the Zwift Academy. If there was one, isn't he? Yeah, but one it's of tour of the Volta. Right. Wins the, the Australian Time Trial Championships you were mentioning. Yeah. yeah. But from the perspective of the team, if you're going to offer a two or three year contract, then 37 is not too old to take that up if yeah. you're that much better than all the other candidates. Yeah. You know, that, it seems to me to not make sense to say I'm going to get a 24 year old who's inferior to a 37 year old to offer them a five year deal when, well, they're not going to offer a five year deal. They're going to offer two, because it's still yeah. speculative, even at this stage. Because totally. now that you've put them through the talent ID, they, they still might not kick on. That's why Jay Vine is such a great story because he mm. still did kick on. Yeah. More yeah. often than not, yeah. you wouldn't have that. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I would I'd hope she gets a deal somewhere else. I always think it's cycling version. It's cycling's version of idols. You win yeah. it. Yeah. It gives you an opportunity. Most of the people that win idols never go on to become world famous <laughs> entertainers. But some of them you've do. got to handle. Yeah, you know, totally. right? like yeah, there's yeah. so many other distractions yeah. and challenges and barriers that you've now suddenly and you can't test for yeah yeah yeah, yeah. interesting right i'm gonna what watch that. i haven't seen that by the way so. hey, let's watch it for, i think it's five episodes all on yeah. youtube so i'm taking um, your word quite long. for it yeah it's mm, interesting I'm, I'm, to from a scientific perspective it's interesting but also watching them race against people like mateo yeah. van der poel and realizing how good van der poel is yeah. to take on three riders and still beat them is, uh, yeah, shows Speaking of how good they are, did you happen to catch much of the cyclocross between Christmas and New Year? I I, I know it there was, was literally like a, a sort of a, a, a festival of cyclocross, but yeah. I was away not having access to any television. I decided actually that next time I'm in Europe between Christmas and New Year, I'm going to Belgium for six days around New Year because I'm going yes. to go and watch all those races. They look like tremendous fun yeah. to be at. Um, speaking of cycling with a drinking problem. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that. The, the races where either Van Aert and Van Poel or some of them had Pitcock as well. Like, I, I can appreciate cyclocross must be just unbelievably hard. I don't mm. think I'd make it through the flat mode, never mind what they do. But normally the races can be quite boring because mm. they, within one lap, they settle into a pattern that then is maintained for an mm. hour, you mm. know. But these races with these three guys, was it was the most entertaining cycling almost that I'd seen last year. Mm. Because it was like it was like watching a road stage on mud. It was it was unbelievable yeah. quality. Now the skills and stuff is amazing. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I love to see the heart rate graph of uh, mm. of guys doing cyclocross because it's different yeah. to mountain biking. In the mountain biking, you have these times when the heart rate drops as you go down technical sections. Whereas mm. cyclocross, I think it's more consistently hard over that forty five minutes to an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be really yeah. interesting. So yeah. I, I enjoyed that. Anyway, yeah. from a pool, you mentioned it, made me think of that. Yeah, mm. caught you are. Two things, two things, and I'll try to do the first one quite quickly. It's just to steer you in this direction. Tommy Lundberg is a physiologist in in Sweden, and he's done, actually he's been on this podcast talking about ice hockey and transgender women once, in a very short snippet. He sent me a link to a documentary on Armand Duplantis, who's the pole vault world record holder and mm. arguably the biggest draw card in men's track and field right now. And it's a documentary called Born to Fly. It's Largely in English because Duplantis spent so much of his time in the US, so that's cool. But it's also subtitled, I think, in, maybe in Swedish. You'll need a VPN to watch it, but mm -hmm. I've started watching it. It looks very entertaining. The reason I bring it up is because it talks so much about how good this guy was when he was young. And really, you can see they've got footage of him jumping three times his height as a 
10 year old i mean it's unbelievable he's mm. just incredible at the young age so if ever there was a case study of an early developer who then went on to succeed in adult it's duplantis much yeah. like tiger woods right yeah similar you see this grainy footage and you say wow man that's precocious talent whereas the other model is that you delay specialization and the early focus you, you try and keep the guy from being or the girl from being an elite athlete for as long as possible and only after adolescence, 17, 18, do you make that big time time commitment, energy commitment, and single sport commitment, right? Mm. And then literally the day after that, someone posted an interview with a basketball coach talking about the same thing. And then David Epstein replied. That's how it popped up on my timeline. And it's an interview with a Cleveland Cavaliers head coach, a guy called J.B. Bickerstaff. And he's interviewed because one of his players scored 71 points in a game, which is like, crazy high and there'd been a couple others there was a 55 there was a 51 and he, they asked him about where all these great young players and this unbelievable talent is coming from and this is basically we're going to play you a clip from his answer to give you an idea so here, here's this coach Bickerstaff speaking about it it literally seems like every night you're seeing somebody do something spectacular uh, and that's the talent level of this you know generation of player uh, and one of the things, like we talk about it as a coaching staff, and we talk about it a little bit in here, but at a younger age, guys are specializing, but also specializing with individual coaches and individual development coaches at a young age. Like there's a business and a market for eight-year-olds and seven-year-olds. And I think what you're seeing is the skill level of guys is increasing. Um, and then again, you get the top of the top of that group and that's what you're seeing take place here. So, okay, that is an endorsement in effect because he's attributing the great performances of these these players mm. to the fact that they're specializing early with specialized coaches and developing skill from a younger and younger age. In response to that clip, someone called Corey Jez posted, Donovan Mitchell, who's this guy's player, who's called the 71, through an 86 mile hour soft, uh, uh, I guess it's baseball, through 86 miles per hour in his sophomore year of high school with a self-described filthy change-up. He was also a well-practiced drummer. And then David Epstein posted he also played soccer in high school, if I'm not mistaken. So now you have these two contradictory testimonies effectively about one person. Now, maybe Bickerstaff's not talking about Mitchell here. Maybe mm. he's talking more generally about what he sees and thinks. But the overwhelming evidence on this question is that early specialization from a younger age with specialist coaches is less likely to produce an elite athlete than diversification and the delayed specialization. Yeah. Now that's that's evidence that's come out a lot in many different sports. So I would it and it's not impossible that some of these athletes have specialized very young, but I suspect most of them probably played multiple sports until the age of 14, 15 then got incredibly tall and mm. basketball then because of that starts to draw them towards it because that's obviously going to you know and in fact to be honest if you're six eight or whatever it is soccer is probably not going to be your sport because you're too big yeah so it's interesting you get these and, and i wonder whether it's a definition thing whether this coach understands specialization differently from how the literature describes it you know specialization means i do one sport and it's all i do and i do it in high volumes Whereas I think what probably happens is you get these just incredible athletes, a guy who plays baseball at high level, soccer at high level, and basketball. He's just, he's just an athletic mm. like phenom. Mm. And then he makes a choice later. And we confuse that with specialization 
because he was good at everything young. You know, we've had athletes. Herschel Gibbs was a cricketer, also a really good rugby player, a really good tennis player. Yeah. It's easy to say he was a specialist because he was, but, but we reverse engineer it wrongly, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's yeah. interesting in that way. So, yeah, we covered specialization and how to develop a champion in our very first season, five, amazing, five years back. <laughs> I think it's time we re- revisit it. Totally. And, and I saw Joe Baker, Can- Canadian researcher, one of the world authorities. He's just brought a book out on his work in this field over the last 20, 30 years. He'd be a great guest to talk about and discuss this a little bit. Mm. You can succeed as an early specializer, but if you're playing the odds, parents, coaches, yeah. get kids to do as much as possible for as long as possible. They, de- they develop a different skill set. They're less likely to be injured and more likely to succeed. I mean, the best example I always think is when we did that podcast in our first season, we talked about the differences between the Tiger Woods story mm. and the Roger Federer story. And Roger Federer was a relatively late specialized, um, specialist in tennis. He was a very good soccer player, I think it was, That's a football right. player. Um, so he was a classic example of somebody who was actually the norm. And I think what happens is we look at those early specialized guys and we go like, well, Tiger Woods, the, the Williams sisters, those type of athletes. Well, if you're not playing you know, top-class tennis at the age of six, you're never going to be great, successful. But as you say, that, mm. that's absolutely not the evidence. Um, yeah. But it's not sec- that part of the evidence is not sexy enough to make headlines. So we tend to focus on the headlines about the early, mm. you know, that Char- Charlie Woods is a prime example of, uh, you know, he's another one Big who time. can potentially become like his father, but he's an early specialist. They're going to say, well, it's just like his dad. You have to be playing, uh, you know, uh, scratch golf at the age of six. Yeah, and it's not benign <laughs> advice because then parents will say, well, that's what my child's going to do. And yeah. so now in summer vacations, the child is going off to a sports camp yeah. when they should be playing other things with friends. So their their social development's affected. Their sports development is affected yeah. because they don't learn. You, can, you don't need to know a great deal about basketball to appreciate that playing football, soccer for U.S. listeners, could give you a different skill set with respect to spatial awareness and angles and movement mm. that would translate quite well to basketball. Mm. Different movements, different demands. So, yeah, again, the, the point is it's not there's not an exclusive path to the top of the podium or the elite sport, the NBA. There's many ways to succeed. But mm. if you're a parent or a coach, you, you probably want to encourage as much range as possible. And if your child is absolutely obsessed about a sport, then by all means feed their interest, but try and also introduce a little bit of variety. It'll help them in the long run. You don't want to produce world-class 16, 17-year-olds, right? I mean, maybe you do. Maybe that's your goal. But I think you'd far rather want a world-class 26-year-old than a 17-year-old. And that 10-year difference is, is quite a big one. That's why I think it'd be quite interesting to have uh, Ilana May, who <coughs> mentioned earlier, on the show, because in South Africa, I can probably name 10 young, particularly female athletes who are very, very good when they're 13, 14, 15, because they always, you know, I think in terms of your body type, when you're mm. 13, 14, 15 as a, as a female runner, you're super efficient. You know, you're stronger than most males at that point because you developed a bit earlier. You're super light, you know, and, and a lot of talented female athletes come through at that point, but they're pushed so hard at school by parents who want to either live vicariously through them or mm-hmm. they want them to be the best they can be. And as soon as they leave school, as soon as they can start making their own choices, 
they just fall away. Yeah. So psychologically, that pressure to perform, the expectations of things like parents becomes a big thing. And a lot of kids, I think, just they when, they, when they're on their own making their own decisions, they're like, well, I don't want to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go training. I just yeah. want to have fun with my friends. And I well, think psychologically, it, it's, a, it's a factor. Yeah, because there's so many things in the way, you know, between the age of 11 and the age of 26, when maybe you want to be at your best, there's so many things you've got to overcome. You know, in, in the case of, any human, but especially women, you have to survive adolescence. Mm. <laughs> like, because it's physical, it sounds bad, so you've got to survive it. You have to, you have to still come on, out on the other side with the same athletic capabilities as you did before. And the sport will be littered with examples of mm. people who just had the, the right distance running physique before adolescence, and then it changes. Yeah. And if you put all your, all your chips on that particular square, They've changed in a direction that you can't win any longer if this was mm. if this was roulette. So you want to spread your chips out because you don't know what happens until after that watershed. Then the next watershed is the change in your life when you leave school. Now you're independent, you can make your own decisions. And that's where maybe it's psychology, maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of physiology, but I think largely psychology. Mm. You can as you say, you 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 actually push back and you become resentful of the imposed discipline. So these are these are delicate ecosystems, you know, a person's athletic pathway. Yeah. And uh, and as you mentioned, it's very easy to, to find a Tiger Woods case, but I guarantee you for every one of him, there were 99 others who went the same way and are now working in banks or schools or as engineers or on construction sites. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. we don't know them. So the big problem is we don't know the cases we don't know and we yeah. are we get drunk on the ones we do mm, mm, and that's mm. there's a cautionary tale here mm, yeah. that we never learn unfortunately yeah. yeah yeah well we look forward to doing that and revisiting that um it has been a while since we since we did that in our first season so we'll look at uh, re, re, revisiting that this year and then uh, if you're an american this is a story that uh, <laughs> probably is probably one of the major stories i think of 2023 in the short year we've had so far but the case of demar hamlin mm. um, just take us through that i mean it, it has been all over the espns of this world um but a big story in american I mean, it was, foot sport yeah monday night football two mondays back second to last week of their regular season. Hamlin's a safety. That's a position for those who don't follow the sport in American football, defensive position. And he makes a tackle on a Bengals player. And as he's making that tackle, the Bengals player sort of drops his shoulder into Hamlin, which is something you will see literally every tackle almost in the sport. Hamlin then goes down under the tackle, gets back up, and then within two se- two to three seconds collapses again. And it, it's quite apparent when a player goes down with an injury as opposed to this. This was mm. different. And everyone on the field saw that it was different. Uh, the reaction of the players and, and everyone was, was quite immediate. Luckily for Hamlin, and this has come out as the feel-good story, is this, the medical response was also really fast. Because what had happened is he'd suffered cardiac arrest, hmm. which almost always involves what we mentioned before, where you get ventricular fibrillation. So the normal electrical, the signal that normally goes across the heart to cause the muscle to contract and pump the blood, that gets disrupted for whatever reason. There's a few different, we'll get into that. And then the ventricle fibrillates, it doesn't pump. It gets this fluttering thing going. And that's a medical emergency. It's responsible for many, many deaths in young athletes. Hmm. Between 100 and 150 a year, it's difficult to know because it can happen while you're driving your car. You crash, you're declared as a road accident casualty, but it was actually a cardiac arrest that caused it. Because oh. a lot of the time they don't show up on autopsy. They don't show up sometimes on screening. You know, Some mm. of these conditions would not be detectable through your normal stress ECGs and screens. Mm. 
So oftentimes death is what's called the sentinel event. The first indication of a problem is a death. Now, what's normally happening is that there's an underlying pathology, the most common of which is called hypertrophic, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hyper meaning large growth of cardiac muscle. That's what that word literally breaks down to. And what happens there is that the, the walls of the heart get thicker and thicker because of this genetic variant that people have. Mm. But they don't get thicker in a normal way. It's like, it's like building a wall, you know, with bricks, layer upon layer. But imagine that someone comes along now and scrambles the bricks up. Now, instead of being a nice ordered muscle arrangement of cells or bricks, it, it looks like, you know, a building that's fallen down. Mm. <laughs> and the problem is those muscle cells don't conduct that signal. And so what happens then is that the signal gets scattered, triggering this fibrillation. That, wow. that condition is the one that has been thought now, recent speculation is that it might not necessarily be the case. Thought to be responsible for most cases. Some listeners might remember Fabrice Mwamba was a football player in England who collapsed yep. in a game. I think he was playing for Bolton Wanderers. He was, his heart was eventually started 78 minutes later Jeez. and he survived. A miracle. And 78 minutes. Yeah. And they were, doing, they, were doing, they were attempting to resuscitate him for more than an hour. And in fact, one of the spectators at the ground was a consultant cardiologist. And he came off the stands onto the field to assist their efforts. Just amazing. That's so, incredible. And I actually was reading up in the aftermath of Hamlin. Muamba's got three sons and they all carry the same genetic variant as he does. And so mm -hmm. he and his wife took the decision which creates an ethical conversation to actually take those boys out of their school sports academies that they were in because they have the same risk factor he did. Wow. So there's some ethical things here as well. Like, what do you do if you know? Yeah. If yeah. It, it's another example. Like, the risk of it happening might be low, but if it happens, it's fatal. So what do mm. you do? <laughs> yeah. uh, Christian Eriksen is thought to be the same. Remember, he was the Danish footballer in 2021 who collapsed. Yeah. Against Finland, him, yeah. it was. We spoke a little bit about that. And there have been some others. Uh, there have been basketball players collapsed and died at college in the U.S. So it does happen more than you might think. You know, as I say... In the U.S. alone, 100 to 150 deaths a year in young athletes during sport. Mm. There are thousands out of, outside of sport. Yeah. And that's just in the U.S. In the whole world, every year, there'll be 10,000 cardiac arrests, and most of them, many of them, will cause the athlete to die. Now, I'm going on a little bit. Hamlin's is a potentially likely different case. We don't know this for sure, and so I'm not sitting here telling you this is the diagnosis. But the way that he presented, and what I've read from a dozen cardiologists since, is that blow to the chest can cause cardiac arrest as well. Because what happens is, if that blow is on exactly the right spot, at exactly the right time, at exactly the right speed, and with exactly the right focal point, it, it messes up the, the iron channels in the muscle cells. So now the sodium and the potassium that are normally exchanged to conduct the electrical signal, they don't work anymore. It's kind of like... It's kind of like a wrecking ball hitting a side of a building and mm. now the doors and the windows are messed up. That's my analogy. Yeah, yeah. And this, this is a condition called commotio cordis, which <laughs> literally means agitation of the heart. So if you experience a, a, a strong sudden blow to the chest, it can stop your heart is what we're saying. And it's, it's incredibly rare. One doctor described it to me as, as anti-winning the lottery or winning the entry lottery. I was going to say, it's a very unlikely... Because, because there has to be a confluence of many different things. It has to happen in exactly the moment that the ventricle is what we call depolarized. In other words, it's after that signal's passed by. And that lasts between 20 and 30 milliseconds. 
So the, the impact has to happen in a 20 to 30 millisecond window. Think how small that is. Mm. Then it has to be a small enough object because if it's too large, it spreads the load out. It doesn't focalize enough. If it's too big a force, it actually damages too large an area and you, you don't get fibrillation for reasons I don't fully understand. Mm. If it's too small, it's not enough to damage them. So it has to be just right. And they reckon between 30 and 50 miles an hour. And then it also has to be the right size and shape to cause exactly that trigger. Now, not surprisingly, the most common sport in which this happens is baseball. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, the second most common is ice hockey. And in fact, there is an ice hockey player. Well, getting hit, hit by the ball as a batter in baseball. Yes, or, or the ball is struck back to a fielder and hits him on the chest. Right. Okay. Because it's a small object traveling yeah. at speed. And then that's, you know, mm. they've done studies where if, if you take, instead of it being a ball, you take a sphere. Mm. the risk of a ventricular fibrillation drops enormously. So the <laughs> ball it applies a focal point, a sphere applies a flat point. You know, right. that makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there have been a couple of cases in ice hockey. There was a, a case of a, an ice hockey player whose name now escapes me, I'll find it, uh, who collapsed in the late 1990s and was playing again a few days later because he didn't require, it wasn't obviously a severe, same, same issue. And then in Italy in the 1990s, in their league, Canadian Italian ice hockey called Jim Boney struck an opponent with his stick over the sort of over the shoulder and the stick impact was enough to cause this guy to collapse and he did die sure and Jim Boney actually faced criminal charges for that the family of the deceased ice hockey player filed civil charges which he settled and then the Italian authorities brought criminal charges for what was a normal okay it's still a foul but it's a people in there's an article in Sports Illustrated and I'm going to post the link for you as well talking about this <laughs> this case and they said something happens a thousand times a season and now this guy was facing potential jail time of more than 10 years wow in the end he settled it um he admitted guilt to involuntary manslaughter and paid a fine and, and got mm. off with it like that unbelievable um it's it's such a fascinating condition i mean i'm reading to you here yeah. there's a paper that was published in 2002 so this is a while back now but in the in the mid 90s the u.s set up a registry of these cases that so could keep track of how they happen and how often so there's literally a, a commercial cordis registry. So by nineteen by two thousand two, this was six years into it, there'd been nine documented deaths in football, American football. Now, Hamlin was a case, not a death, luckily. Mm. But I wanted to read to you some of the others. Because now we've discussed, I think, baseball, ice hockey, mm. uh, boxing can cause it. I wanted to read to you some of these. I mean it's unbelievable. Forty nine events documented that involved contact with implements regarded as toys. And I'm gonna give you a few examples. A hollow plastic bat that a 13-year-old boy flung 15 feet, 5 meters, and inadvertently struck the chest of his 2-year-old sister. Sure. Yikes. A 5-year-old boy died after being struck in the chest by a circular plastic sledding saucer. Two adolescents died after receiving sharp but light chest blows from friends during shadow boxing matches. Uh, Unusual cases, 23-year-old man fatally struck his friend in the chest with a closed fist as a mutually agreed remedy for hiccups and he <laughs> died as a consequence a uh, two-year-old girl struck in the head by the uh, struck in the chest by the head of her dog so wow so anyway it's it's I mean, f- start like being struck by lightning kind of occurrence it's that kind of thing yeah, you know yeah. it's just the probability of it happening mm. especially in sport you know your heart rate's so much higher i don't know maybe that window of opportunity is even smaller i suppose the lesson is but, you know, don't don't mess around with it. <laughs> hitting somebody in the chest. Yeah, to if you can avoid it, just try and avoid it. Do yeah. why yeah. take that risk? You know. Yeah. Now, it was interesting to see the reaction from the U.S. media to this because 
the Christian Erickson thing, they obviously it was a big news story, but they kind of got on with it. The US media, 24 hours a day for the five, six days afterwards, this was the story. And Analysis paralysis. Yeah, I mean, they were talking about it for hours and hours and hours. And, and you know, like Hamlin had this charity for toys and it's exceeded 7 million in donation. It was actually quite a, it's become quite a feel-good story. Not quite, it is. It's an amazing story and he's recovered. He's been discharged to continue his recovery at home now. So it's miraculous. And so they were blaming COVID at one stage, weren't they? Well, they blame COVID and the vaccine, which yeah. kills me, like really. Um, yeah. But, and we'll get on to that in a moment. The, Hamlin's survival is down to the medical care received and the speed with which he received it. Um, the the data shows if you go back to the beginning, like the survival rate from commercial quarters was like in in the low single percentages, four to six percent. It's now up at sixty mm. percent because mm. people understand that you defibrillate and resuscitate as quickly as possible. And for every minute that you delay that resuscitation, you drop the survival chance by about 10%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what happened with Hamlin is he got really, really quick care and treatment and good care and treatment. You know, the, and the NFL's got these protocols, which are good. I mean, we... I was going to say, if it ha it's going to yeah. happen to you, happening in a, in a game like that, there's amazing facilities for people to... Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for all the talk of miracles and so on, it's a medical... So medical intervention saves, saves the life, you know. But yeah, I mean, there, there was, as usual, an army of people who said, well, it must be the vaccine. I mean, we're living in a time now where if you trip over a rock and break your arm, it's the vaccine's fault to yes. some people. It's ridiculous. <laughs> now, now it's, not, it's not impossible that there is an, a small increase in risk of cardiac arrest because of the vaccine. Because remember, we discussed the early studies on the vaccine showed a small risk in pericarditis and myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle and the heart membrane. Yes. Those two conditions have been linked with cardiac arrests. Long before COVID and long before the jibby jab, as someone very sarcastically said to me, it had been documented that sudden cardiac death in young athletes is often caused by myocarditis. About 9 to 10% of them. In other words, every 10th case is the result of a viral infection that the person had had before and then stuck around and caused this condition. Yeah. Makes sense, yeah? That makes sense, yeah. Now, if you know that, if you know that about 10, 11% of all cardiac arrests are caused by viral infections and the myocarditis, and you know that we've just come out of a pandemic that has infected billions of people, millions, hundreds of millions of people in the USA, and you see a cardiac arrest in a young athlete, why would you go to the vaccine before you go to the virus? Yes. <laughs> like, it's so stupid. Now, it's not to say that the vaccine has zero risk. If anyone says the vaccine has zero risk, they're lying. But the question we should be asking is, is the risk of having COVID higher or lower or the same as the risk of having had the vaccine? And all it evidence- seems an obvious answer. Exactly. And yeah. all the evidence supports the obvious answer is that the risk of myocarditis after COVID in young athletes was documented in US sport. Mm. It's roughly one in- 170. It was about 0.6, like it was 0.6%, mm, I think it was, mm, mm. right? Yeah. So may, maybe I've done my math wrong, but that, that figure's about right. Between 1 in 150 and 1 in 170. Mm. That's not trivial. The risk of developing that same condition from the vaccine is much lower, orders of magnitude lower than that. Yeah. So yeah. stop with the vaccine conspiracies for everything because you actually undermine the fact that there is a risk to the vaccine. But when you blame everything on it, you actually make mm. yourself sound like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And that happened here as well. And it has in response. So I wrote a piece on this on the patron site, which I made public, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. And you yeah. can read a bit more on that.
That's quite fascinating. Unusual, but fascinating. Yeah. So we're about to wrap up. We've got a couple of things we want to get through and looking at the year ahead. Uh, obviously, we, we, we've been talking, uh, we've talked about this before, but uh, one of the podcasts we're looking at doing this year is around ketones. Yeah. Just tell tell us what ketones are, because you know, I've read a fair bit about it. I know they're expensive to buy. They use them for everything from performance enhancing, potentially legal performance enhancing yeah. um, ketones to stuff that helps you lose weight. I mean, what's the latest? on it and and why why should we do a podcast on this very unusual yeah. product it's a newsmaker because it it's been in cycling especially been put forward as as doping which is which is not i mean by by definition if if wada decides tomorrow to test for ketones ketone bodies or whatever it is and why is it not seen as doping well because it's a fuel source you see so like it's 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 effectively the same as taking um, what do they have in the US Gatorade what we would call Pyrade Energade <laughs> you know except Gatorade's yeah. giving you glucose what these athletes are taking is they're taking ketones and a ketone is a, is a fuel source that the body can oxidize to produce and ketones are naturally produced aren't they they are yes yeah. they're the end product of our own metabolism already and in fact when you when you burn fat at high enough rates your body produces ketones one of which mm is responsible for giving diabetics that like really sweet breath because they, they, they develop acetone, they mm. produce acetone and that's what you smell on the breath of an untreated diabetic. Mm. And so, the, 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 and it's a concept that's existed in this physiology for decades is that during endurance performance, the limiting, metabol- the limiting fuel is carbohydrate. And at some point, if we don't replenish or spare it, we will run out of that fuel. The tank runs empty and that's when fatigue happens. We slow down and eventually stop. And so for many years, physiologists have said, well, can we spare the carbs by shifting the body onto other things like proteins? There have been a lot of studies there, like um, fats, like uh, monotriglycerides. And so they've tried different studies with different kinds of fats, different length of fatty acids and different forms of protein and amino acids, all with the same intention. And that's all ketones are trying to do is they're trying to give an athlete an alternative source of fuel so that the carb is spared and you can produce more energy at a higher rate for longer. Mm. Now, what's interesting is that so far, despite the fact that they're used and sworn by by many athletes, there is not really very good evidence that they are beneficial for performance. And last year in May, a paper was published by Brooks et al. in a journal called the Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism called Acute ingestion of ketone, monoesters, and precursors do not enhance endurance exercise performance, a systematic review and meta-analysis. The title gives away what they found. And so they're saying that in all the studies they've looked at, there's no consistent positive finding here yet it's still being used. And then what happened was, just before Christmas, Renato, who's another one of our regular patrons, so we've actually kicked 2023 off with a hat tip to Pratima and Renato, both of whom have been very regular. And he sent me a paper that had been published in the Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism by the American Journal of Physiology called Ketone Monoester Ingestion Increases Post-Exercise EPO Concentrations in Healthy Men. So... This is a study not looking at performance, not looking at fuel oxidation, but actually looking at whether ketone ingestion drives EPO increases. Interesting. Okay, just tell us what EPO so is so EPO, for those of you who don't know. EPO is a... Is Erythropoietin. Erythropoietin, which is released by our bodies, the kidney specifically, and stimulates the production of red blood cells. Everyone knows EPO as a drug. Mm. That was the drug in the 2000s. 
in the 2010s, that was the drug that endurance athletes used because if you can drive red blood cell count, you drive oxygen carrying capacity, you improve performance. Mm. And so what this study did is admittedly it took nine men, that's a small sample. So, you know, it's, a, it's expensive though, so that's probably why, and it's, it's a tough study. And they did one hour of cycling, either taking a ketone or a placebo. And sure enough, when you take the ketone, your EPO concentration is 20% higher than, your, than we take the placebo. So this is interesting because all the other studies so far have looked at ketones during a bout of exercise, maybe a block of training and whether it helps performance. This is suggesting that ketones have a signaling function because the ketone now somehow is driving the production of EPO. Which then makes me think that maybe what you need is you need ketone use for a month before you start seeing the benefit because signaling takes time. You've got mm -hmm. to get the ketone to drive the EPO, to drive the red blood cell, which then improves the oxygen carrying capacity. And then if you train, you get better. So now I'm starting to think actually, maybe the studies are looking in slightly the wrong place. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's interesting. And so I was thinking <laughs> while I was overseas that I would love to get a batch of ketones and then just for fun and purely self-interest, put you, me, John, Simon, Darren, Doug, all through a little study of our own mm. where we all take ketones and we do it for a period of time and we see whether we can find a performance enhancing effect with training on ketones to produce performance mm. as opposed to just ketones and performance. Yeah. Be a fun thing to do. Yeah. Plus, we should get a guest on here who actually knows what knows they're talking about, is, about yeah. Yeah. to explain to us how we might make that study better. So maybe that's a science support research study that we just informally <laughs> throw out there. Yeah, so if you're in the world of ketones, so let us know if you're willing to sponsor some of those <laughs> because things. Because they are expensive. Because they are expensive, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was very, it was made sexy, I think, by, but to some extent by the Yumba Visma a couple of years ago, where everybody talked about mm. the fact that Primoz Roglic and the, and the guys were really, that's what they were, that was their difference. Right. Um, so it became a thing. I don't know whether, I haven't seen much since well, that. And whether I, they are still on a ketone program. They became, remember it became very secretive. Even before Yumba, I remember yeah. Froome was asked about ketones and he said, what are ketones? <laughs> but Sky was using them. Mm. So that was like, again, Froome seemed not to help himself sometimes with like <laughs> diversion and distractions <laughs> and misinformation. But, but, but it seems like in the pro peloton now, what proportion of teams do we think are using them? Probably quite high. But there's a stigma almost because it was portrayed as a doping means. Mm. And I don't know, you, maybe there's a philosophical argument about whether it should be classed as doping, even though it is nutritional. Mm. But, but yeah, there's, there's, there's mystery around ketones. So I don't know if teams have been using them for six, seven years, then that would lead me to think that they know that they are beneficial. Because it's not unusual for teams to try stuff that doesn't work. For sure but they pretty quickly filter out what doesn't work because it's expensive and it's time consuming and there's a psychic and an energy and a financial cost. So normally if something sticks around in that testing ground, it's got some mm. benefit. You know, it's, there are studies showing EPO has no benefit, mm. literally, like literally concluding no benefit from EPO, but no one in their right minds would say that it's not there. And all elite cycling, cross country skiing and running guys know that it works. Yeah. So there's a testing ground that the real world creates that the lab sometimes can't simulate. And so I think if those elite teams have been using it for more than five, six years, they know how to use it for best results. And it might be worth 1%, something that can't be found in a lab. Yep. But that 1% was more than the difference between Vinegar and Pogacar last year. So then, yeah. So that's why it would be interesting. To I speak always worry to about the placebo about effect in these sort of situations. Right. And that's, that's if you believe other, it's going to work, it probably might. 
Yeah, and so aside from the cost of um, the ketones in our little study that I'd like to do, we have to figure out how to get a placebo because these things mm. don't taste great. No. You know, you're not snacking on this stuff because it tastes good. Mm. Um, so we'd have to make a placebo that tastes as bad. Mm. Or we'd have to make sure that everyone who does the studies never tasted a never ketone tasted so a they ketone don't know before. the difference. But yeah, mm. so there's some things to overcome. But we fun to have an interview with a ketone researcher mm. who can help us build a protocol that maybe yeah is designed better to simulate what elite athletes do because yeah. elite athletes don't just take ketones for a few days ride it and then go away they mm. they they're on them a lot in in blocks of training and then in in races and so on so yeah this yeah it might be a fun project yeah okay we'll look into that and then uh, a lot of of course to look forward to in 2023 um, a couple of other things we're going to look at uh, hopefully this year is the long covid issue because yeah. i think it's become almost part of the lexicon in, in 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 sports science at the moment there's so many people not knowing what the effects of it are whether the long-term effects are six months three months a year to some extent and, and i'm fascinated to hear about that and we've got hopefully lined up in the next couple of weeks we've been talking to somebody particularly around the heart issue yes but long COVID is something that is is going to be around i think for quite a while yeah so there's two topics there i think you know the heart issues i've i've given you a very superficial overview of things like the myopathy mm. the commercial quarters won't come up there but the the screening does screening help should people go for that annually and so on so we've lined up the world authority on cardiac arrest in athletes mm. um american guy john dresner works out of seattle within the next few weeks that'll be a podcast yeah all by itself then that will include COVID. but i think the long COVID is even bigger than that you know and i know for instance in south africa there's a registry of athletes now being run with COVID, and they're documenting how they return to normal participation and performance. So there have been some fascinating studies using Fitbit mm. data showing that for- because they can wear them all the time. And, and, and you, mm. measure, you measure physical activity levels, for instance, by looking at step count and sleep quality, which, mm. okay, inaccuracy aside, they've shown that for like three, four months in some instances, people don't return to normal step counts after having COVID. And so this thing sticks around for longer than most people might realize. I mean, I've, I've had COVID now and I'm struggling and it's been mm. months. There was a COVID outbreak at our conference in Amsterdam I where remember 20 that. or 30 people not well came then. down. Yeah. And I was absolutely flattened. I mean, I recovered within four or five days, but I haven't recovered fully. Mm. And so like if I look at my power numbers now, I'm 20% I'm 20 off where I was in in October before that. And I cannot get over it. So I think mm. there are a lot of people in this boat. Tim... Tim O'Neill messaged me on Twitter, one of our regular followers I engage with regularly. He said he's been diagnosed as having pericarditis subsequent to having COVID a few months back. Hmm. So this is a thing, and I think it's definitely worth talking about. The, the chronic inflammation, the potential for cardiac issues, lung problems that develop, hmm. and just lack of energy. I it's mean, almost moved from an acute disease to a chronic disease yeah, now to some extent. a lot, of people, a lot yeah. of people. And I mean, I can't sit here and say, like, I've been incapacitated by it because mm. I'm permanently at like six or seven out of 10, never one or two out of 10 energy-wise. and mm. But I'm not at the eight or nine some yeah. days as before. And I'm sure many listeners would be in the same boat. And so definitely want to get some researchers who are studying COVID in athletes. Yeah. And actually a doctor or two to talk about the return to competition. Our friend Adrian Rotano works with UAE and they've got a very rigid protocol about how they get a cyclist back into normal training after COVID. Mm. 
So it's, they're aware of the long-term impact there yeah, potentially. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Fo- yeah. I mean, that the world is aware of the long-term impact of viral infections even before COVID was mm. ever known to exist, you know. We knew, I remember colleagues were studying that athletes who train too soon after a virus run the risk of developing just an acquired training intolerance. Mm. They just they just get flattened by their own training. Mm. And that was known 20 years before COVID. Mm. Why would COVID be any different? It's the same as the cardiac arrest thing. It's like, you don't have to reinvent molecular biology and immunology and physiology here. Mm. We know. I remember a doctor friend of me telling me that um, if, you, if, you've, if you've had the flu or any kind of viral infection, you should be taking it easy for at least two months. And that was quite surprising to yeah, me because you think that's, that's a long time yeah, to be not training. But he believes that the, the long-term effects of any kind of virus is quite significant. So, yes to the latter but again I mean no one's taking two months off especially not no, elite athletes no, I mean it means if you got if you got the flu in the May season. your season would be over that's right Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to yeah. happen you know they, they've got yeah. two weeks maybe mm. one week off one week to rebuild mm. and then we go yeah so when you consider a disease that is as severe as COVID compared to the normal flu mm. and was as widespread as it mm. was with many people having multiple bouts mm. why would anyone be surprised that this thing's got effects it's not yeah. it's just yeah, people seem surprised by the fact that they can't learn from history and yes. biology. That's the problem. We just don't learn. Well, we also look at, I mean, I think we always compare ourselves largely to what happens with elites. You know, somebody will get oh, sick and, that, you yes. know, two days two days later, I'm always amazed at how elites break collarbones and three weeks later they're back on the bike racing. Yeah, there's something about <laughs> being elite that allows you to do that maybe. That's chicken or egg. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and finally, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about the stuff that we're looking forward to this year. Obviously, World Athletics Championships um, happening in Budapest. We're hoping we're going to be there. Um, there's a good chance that uh, we didn't make it last year to Oregon, but uh, this year we're hoping to make to Budapest to cover it live and to look at some of the mm. um, the, the, the stories that are happening there. I, I'm obviously very looking forward to the cycling season as we do every year. Rebka Evenepoel, you know, he's an amazing year last year, not racing the Tour de France, racing the Giro this year, sort of kind of missing the big one, but still is he going to be the dominant force in cycling? The classics uh, especially, you know? The classics, I mean, it's will going he, to be amazing. How many will he do? Will he try and do the cobbles? Yeah. Maybe he yeah. won't because of his Giro commitment. Yeah. Which, yeah. which, which, yeah. yeah. That's that's the one thing about his choice of the Giro. Well, it denies us two things. One is the is the three way battle between him, Pogacar, and Vinegar. Yeah, and it might deny us Evenepoel at his best focus in the classics, where we'll instead have to settle for Van Aert, Van Aert, and Pogacar. Yeah, so there's a lot. a lot to watch anyway. <laughs> it's but, a lot to watch anyway. Yeah. But the later season classics, I mean, like the way he won mm. his two his two last year, crazy, you know, just mm. amazing. Yeah. Any big highlights for you looking forward to particularly? I know well, there's the rugby, lots World, of, the rugby World Cup yeah. is September, October. So I'll be over there twice for that, mm. the start and then again at the end. And I'm sure like the sports in the news, there'll be a lot to discuss at that point. Yeah. I'd love to get a referee on to this podcast to talk about not not the law, <laughs> but the science of the referee and how they prepare, how they deal with pressure, their psychology, their fitness approach. Um, yeah. that'll, be, that'll be really interesting. And then one or two players potentially and coaches. I always wondered whether it's easier to do a sports science degree than to be a rugby referee in terms of understanding the laws. Nuclear physics degree. It's unbelievably complicated. It is a complex game, yeah. It is indeed, And that that alone would be worth speaking to a referee about. How do you keep keep in touch? Yeah, and how do they Mm. think simplistically under pressure? Because remember, they've got one second to make a decision. Yeah. So they can't afford to get 
distracted by the complexity of the law. So mm. what's your thinking process at Iraq? In order, what are you looking at? One, yeah. two, three, four, five penalty. <laughs> and it's almost got to be sort of instinctive, isn't it? Yeah. To some so, extent. And that's why I'm sympathetic to refs, even though I criticize them often. Mm. Actually, cognitively, I'm sympathetic. So there's that. I'm also looking forward to I hope we can make it to the Athletics World Champs. That's a bucket list item of mine. Yeah, for sure. Has been for a long time. And yeah. if we do that, then we can springboard our way into the Olympics in 24. <laughs> that's the main thing. Another bucket list ticked off. Uh, what else? There's... I want to do a podcast on tennis. Yes, we've got, we've got a good guest lined up before, there. Yeah, we we sure. must look at that. That'll yeah. be interesting. Yeah, we've got a good line lined up there. Um, yeah, yeah, and then we'll see what else the year throws yeah, our and, way. And, and for those no of you who listen, let us know what you think. You know, we're always on Twitter, Sports Pod. If you're on, on Patreon, you can obviously contact us. There. But let us know who you'd like to talk to. Yeah, send us you a know, wish list. Of- you send us a wish list and we'll do our best to get uh, get those guys involved in the, mm. in the podcast this year. Motorsport. Yeah, sport, the fascinating one again. Yeah, suggesting motorsport physiology. And I've, I would have, I've, I've been very interested in that, never got around to it. So that yeah. might be this year. It's always to tackle things we don't know too much about, which mm. is always very interesting. Yeah, Professor Rostaker, thank you very much for your time. And uh, best of luck to all of you who are approaching 2023 with gusto. Uh, we're looking forward to having an exciting year in our fifth season of the Science of Sport podcast. Don't forget, you can contact us on the Sports Side pod, which is on Twitter. And of course, Ross himself is on Twitter as well, very active on that platform. And of course, we talked about our Patreon. But uh, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.